Now, I, I personally, I have been and done my best to stay off the socials and social media this year, and just it's been a breath of fresh air. I like people better. Um, it's great. Try it. It's wonderful. Uh, but this past week, I did jump on real quick because I wanted to wish my daughter a happy birthday, and, and Kay, wherever you're at, happy birthday this week. And so it was, uh, yeah, someone else, there you go, happy birthday. Um, so, you know, it's funny, you, you jump on to do one thing, and how many of you get lost scrolling forever? Uh, yeah, you didn't raise your hand, you liar. Um, Y'all do, right? Y'all are like, how did I just lose an hour? It's like YouTube time. Um, you know, I started scrolling a little bit, and I came across a tweet that I just started cracking up at. This is from Asher Perlman. He's a, uh, a comedian, a comic writer, and this is what he says. There is no one I have less in common with than the me who wrote my Facebook statuses circa 2008. Now, a lot's changed since then, would you agree? A lot has changed since then. Um, if, if 2022 you had a conversation with 2008 you, would they agree? Right? Some of you are like, I don't know, I wasn't even born. You know, like, great, you don't agree with anything you thought then. It's gotten harder, much harder. Right? But for those of us who are a little older, like, would I agree with myself? So I'm a glutton for punishment. I went to my 2008 Jimmy. What did Jimmy in 2008 think? Would I agree or disagree with him? And, and what was he thinking? And thankfully, he tweeted a lot at that point. He was really early on in Twitter. And I will tell you, like, there's some things I would agree with myself on. I would high-five myself, some posts, right? November 9th, let's go G-Men, crush those dirty birds, right? I, I, I didn't know I was going to pastor down here yet. <laughs> Let me just tell you, um, you're always going to be held accountable for what you put on the internet, right? Someone's going to find it, even if it's your future self, and the Giants did win that game 36-31. Um, if I could go back now, I'd ask him what winning felt like, you know, <laughs> remind me. You know, I would question some decisions from 2008 Jimmy as well. This is uh, mustache mania in, in, in uh, listen, I, I can't even tell you, like, this is November. I was doing this for a charity. No, this is May. It's May. Why would I do this in May? Um, I, I don't agree with this, but I'm loving the little earring thing going on there, the Yankee hat. And I am so grateful that I have friends that love me enough to make fun of me, like Ryan Valdivia is there at the bottom. I'll take amazing for 500, Alex. Um, so good. If you don't know Ryan, he actually pastored here for a little bit, um, 15 years ago or so. He was, he was here. And I uh, love friends like that. But then there are some 2008 posts from Jimmy that make me cringe. I've been waiting for 25 minutes in line for American cheese. There's nothing American about that. I know you're thinking, like, wait, why did they make you cringe? That's not bad. Like, well done. Um, I, I will show myself, and I, I did, I, I'll show myself a little bit of grace in this because I look at the date of December 14th, and I remember that it is now Christmas time in North Jersey where I live. It's busy. It's packed. Everybody's throwing parties. And I did have um, you know, a, a wife at home with a newborn and a one-and-a-half-year-old. I, I needed to get home, right? And so, all right, I'll, 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 I'll go, and I'll give them. Now, I cringe because, well, it's a pretty silly tweet when you look at it. Like, big deal. And my, you know it's Jimmy because the grammar's off and there's spelling that's weird, okay? Like, it's just, you know it's me. But now, in 2022, I look back on this and I think, oh, man, there was an underlying assumption about what it meant to be American 
and what it meant that I deserved and expected as an American. Now, I, I want to go back and shake 2008 Jimmy a little bit here. I'll be honest with you. I want to be like, dude, it's cheese. It's cheese. Look around. There's a ton of other people waiting right now. They're American too, right? Look up at that frazzled deli worker. Do you think they want to be in this position? They don't want to be here. Everyone's mean to them right now. Like, give them a break. I would shake myself and say, Jimmy, the way of Jesus is about others. It's about being patient, slowing down to find the rhythm of Jesus in all of these moments. And you're pissed and tweeting about cheese. Now, I'm sure 2008 Jimmy would have thought about laying 2022 Jimmy out right there. He would have, it absolutely would have crossed his mind thinking, who are you to correct me about cheese? But if I said that same thing to 1999 Jimmy, 1999 Jimmy very well would have laid out 2022 Jimmy and taken his little you know, deli ticket if it was quicker. That's what 1999 Jimmy would have done. And, and here's why I tell you this, is because I know that I have changed a lot in 25 years. I have changed a lot of the ways that I think, even theologies that I have, and not, not just like physically changed, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I have changed. Where I used to believe one thing, and now I believe something else. And as we look today at what made Jesus different, I need to be as upfront with you as possible. I did not come to recognize this as a valid option for life, the way that Jesus lived differently. I didn't think this was an option because I never learned about it. I never, I mean, I read about it and it didn't really click and like whatever, but I was taught something very different. And so this morning, as we unpack what made Jesus different, I'm just going to be level with you right away, online, in person. This may be uncomfortable for some of you. Um, you may start to write a list of like a million questions, and all I want to do is say, thank you, join the club, because <laughs> I, I question a lot of this too. 1999, Jimmy would have written me off about this. I know that, so some of you may write me off, and that, that's okay. I understand why. So let's look at one of Jesus' teachings, starting today, if you will, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the biography of Jesus written by his disciple Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount to a series of verses called the Beatitudes. Would you stand with me? This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in a large crowd gathered, and this is the word of Jesus. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, and the better translation in the ESV there is meek. God blesses those who are meek, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you 
and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Now, you have to remember Jesus is talking to a large crowd, and as he continues to talk about the kingdom of heaven over and over, he's turning the world upside down as they know it. And, and it, every time you read what Jesus teaches about what the world should look like, he might as well say, if you're thinking up, the answer's down. If you're thinking left, you need to go right. Uh, it, it just drives me crazy sometimes because it seems like it's all wrong. And, and he says things in here that just don't make sense to me. And I'll be honest with you, like I don't understand when he says, be happy about being persecuted and lied about. Right? You're blessed if people do this to you because you followed me. Call me crazy. It is really hard to be happy in those moments, right? Anybody else with me? Right? We, I don't like being persecuted. I don't like when people lie about me. But I will be honest with you. It is verse 5 that rocks me the most. When it says, God blesses those who are humble, who are meek, for they will inherit the whole earth. How in the world can humbleness and, and meekness, this idea of being a like less than in many ways, how do you inherit the whole world and earth? Come on, let's be real. People like this get rolled over. They don't inherit anything. They, it, life costs them everything. They get rolled over by big horses, by chariots, by tanks from stronger people who are trying to take over the world. Statements like this is what make Jesus so different because it's not just statements, but it's his life because Jesus was committed to a life of nonviolence and enemy love. Jesus was committed to a life of nonviolence and enemy love. There was no exceptions. There was no excuses. There's no, well, yeah, but I mean, like, what if Jesus was committed to a life of nonviolence and enemy love? Honestly, I don't think it matters where in history you go. It is filled and changed by violence. It just is. I mean, I mean violence works, doesn't it? Violence works. I'm not saying it's good or, or that it doesn't cost us greatly, but it absolutely works. It does. If advancement, accumulation, dictated, structured safety, if this is your goal, then violence is an option that often works to get to that place. I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? Now, now we know this because it's written in many of the stories that you and I tend to watch, love, and read. Um, as a Star Wars dork, uh, you know, I get it. I was reminded of this actually last week. Eileen and I were watching through The Mandalorian together. And how many of you have seen The Mandalorian? Okay, awesome. Uh, how many of you hate Star Wars? All right, cool, door, right? No, I'm only, uh, um, if, you, if you hate Star Wars, you're not familiar with it, let me just tell you what's happening so that you can understand the clip that I want to show you really quick. Um, if you want to watch all the new things, don't worry about it. Back in the uh, old school days when, they, when George Lucas was cool and making videos on like a Jeep, uh, 
Star Wars was really ending with this place that a, there was a group called the Empire who continued to have the most amount of troops, the most amount of guns, and the biggest guns in the galaxy. And their goal was to take over the galaxy. They did this through violence. And there was a small group of rebels who decided to be violent, but less violent because they don't have as big of guns. But the Empire's violence is met with the rebels' violence, and the rebels win, and it's great. As they win, and the Empire is destroyed, and their big guns are destroyed, we find that the whole galaxy is trying to figure out how do you get peace. And the Mandalorian is a, probably takes place about five years after the end of the great movies where six ends, okay? So it's about five years after, and in this moment, we find that the Empire has been slowly working themselves back into power. And there's a clip that I would love for you to see where an old Empire commander sits down at a table with the Mandalorian and a person who has captured him, not really, but, and, and he reminisces about the good old days. Let's listen to the commander. Just as in this situation, it was all avoidable. Why did Mandalore resist our expansion? The Empire improves every system it touches, judged by any metric. Safety, prosperity, trade, opportunity, peace. Compare Imperial rule to what is happening now. Look outside. Is the world more peaceful since the revolution? I see nothing but death and chaos. The commander remembers something quite different than other people in this moment. The empire brought peace and stability. The man with the power remembers the prosperity, but he neglects to mention how he got there. He neglects to mention the thousands upon thousands of lives that were taken, the violence that it took to gain it and to maintain it. And to be honest, this is somewhat similar to the culture that Jesus is growing up in. Roman occupied, the Roman occupied world was not a pleasant world. It was a violent, violent world. Their city-state, they used whatever force was necessary and, and to maintain and gain more, pro to gain more uh, countries, and at the same time, they used it to keep people in line. Violence was their tool. And, I mean, come on, how many movies do we, do we get to watch every year that come out about some new Roman emperor that we're learning about or some Roman commander that went and took out everything, and we're like, he's Awesome. He's, a, you know, he's, he's the gladiator. And like violence was celebrated. They've got arenas built to this. We celebrate them. And, and in Jesus's time in Israel, what's wild, especially in the city of Jerusalem, there was often extra troops that were stationed there because this city was known to riot around every holiday. And there was just trouble that happened. Crucifying, which was a... a, a a death penalty from the Roman Empire was this way of killing somebody that they had executed down to, uh, they had perfected this way of executing someone as an art form. 
And I mean, even like 70 years before Jesus was was born, we have record from historians of the Romans in one day crucifying like 6,000 people. In one day, I don't know what that field looked like, but I know that they do this, then they, they were horrific with how they use violence, and it was meant to teach people a lesson. It was meant to say, listen, this is not something you should be doing, and if you do, this is where you'll end up. This is the world that Jesus grew up in. It was a very, very violent world. But to be honest, so was the religious world that he was living in. And, and they tended to use violence against each other because if they had someone who was coming up in the ranks that they knew was going to disrupt the Roman you know, government, they didn't want another crucifixion series of 6,000 people. So they would put down their own people who were rebels in order to stop the Romans. So they used violence to stop. Isn't that weird? But this is what happened. This is what they did. And Jesus's teaching, though, became very, very different to the religious teachers and into the culture. And if you continue down in Matthew chapter 5 um, from the Sermon on the Mount, we'll jump down to verse 38. And this is what Jesus says. And we'll kind of pick this apart as we go. He says, you have heard the law. And when he says the law here, he's referring to um, Leviticus chapter 24. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is what's written in Leviticus. And I know this sounds like cool. He's giving them an allowance to hurt people. Uh, this uh, law, when it was given in Leviticus, was a limit, not an allowance. So if someone comes and punches you in the face, you can't then all of a sudden punch them in the face and punch them in the gut, right? You only get one face shot. That's your limit. Make it good. And so you can't extend over what has happened. Make sense? Okay, cool. Cool, it was to keep you from going and doing something worse. But Jesus says, he says, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Jesus switches it up here again. He just totally turns things upside down. And it is so hard for me, and I think for us in this moment, to come, not come up with the, yeah, but. Like, yeah, but what if? Don't resist an evil person. Like, that, that's what you're telling me to do. Don't strike back if someone strikes you. Give more than someone's suing you for. Carry your enemy's equipment who's oppressing you, not just one mile for them, but two he really can't be meaning what he's saying here, right? There has to be another meaning to this. Maybe he's just being general or, you know, he's telling a story. Depending on how you're feeling right now, it gets better or worse because he continues. In verse 43, by saying, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor. And now he's referring to Leviticus 29. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right, you ready for what Jesus says? But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. He says, but I say to you, and what are those three words? Let's say it one more time. But I say to you.
There's no exceptions. There is no what ifs. And he's living in a nation where they make murdering the thousands part of maintaining peace. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. But but what if the enemy is... But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What if they threaten my life? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What if they threaten my family? But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. But what if they're a horrific nation? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As a 21st century follower of Jesus I think, you know, I, I love that when you go to a football game or you see like Christians on TV, we're holding up a John 3.16 sign and it's like, oh, John 3.16, you know, and we celebrate that Jesus sent his only son to die for us. But this right here, love your enemies, love your enemies. This was the John 16, John 3.16 of the first 300 years of the church. This is what they held up. This was their mantra. This was their motto. This is what defined who they were. And if you're a student of history at all, you would know that the early Christian church and the early Christians were gruesomely murdered for their choice to be a follower of Jesus. The very first disciples and generations after had to legitimately wake up every single day with the, and having to answer this question. Am I willing to give up my life for Jesus today? Because I could be accused of anything and it could be taken. They could lie about me and I will lose my life. The early church, you know, sometimes church hasn't changed. Let me just tell you that. The early church is funny because, you know, all the different communities that they had in the early church, they couldn't agree on anything. Like they argued over everything like churches do now. Should, you know, we eat these things, drink those things, wash our hands. They had all these rules and regulations. They argued about everything, even to which books should be included in the Bible they argued over. But there is one thing that they agreed upon across the entire board that everyone would say, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And they all agreed when they had to answer the same exact question, because this is the question that came to them all the time. Should a follower of Jesus kill another human being? And they all agreed 100% the answer was no. They lived this over and over. The answer was no, no killing, not for any reason. They believed in a life and lived a life of nonviolence and loving your enemy. They did this for 300 years strong until the church of Jesus gained political power. Then almost like the rebels of Star Wars, they began to use violence to justify false peace. There is no place for violence in the kingdom of heaven. If you follow history through into, um, you know, the the, like 1095 area, this is when the Crusades began. It's another series of violent massacres from people holding shields with a cross on it. Because some, like, Wait, what? I don't know how it happened. I don't know when violence and enemy elimination became a Christian virtue to stand up for. But I say, love your enemies. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I I know, I get it. 
that it's like, seriously, stop, Jimmy. Like, this is uncomfortable. I see it on some of your faces right now. I understand. I get it. But if we're unashamedly biblical, we have to say what this, like, we have to look at this for what it says. And I think it's even harder for many of us to hear, even myself, because we live in a very militaristic world in society. I, I, we just do. You've got to call it for what it is. I mean, North Korea is doing public missile launches and telling everybody around it, about it. A Russian tanks lined up on the Ukraine border before war even started. Not to mention how ingrained militarism is in the United States. I mean, we have fighter jets that fly over our sporting events to remind us of our power. Right? In America, we like when our leadership shows power and when they show force like this. I, I get it. It's like as a country we're saying, I know that I have power and I want you to know that I have power and that I have the ability to crush you. So be on your guard. This is who we are. I'll be honest, my understanding of Jesus' stance on nonviolence and enemy love, it did not get to this place overnight, and, and I know that I could walk you through a series of times, uh, of moments, that I knew things were shifting for me. But I know the moment that I realized this was no longer an idea, but this was the way I wanted to live like Jesus. And um, it was actually December of 2015, there were two moments in our country that happened that, uh, that shook me. And they shook me for different reasons. Um, one of them was a survey went out, and it's kind of humorous to begin with. A survey went out uh, to Republicans and Democrats about different topics to be voting on and, and policies that matters. It was filled with questions, um, things that were happening in the news at the time, criminal background checks for gun buyers, uh, barring Muslims from entering into our country, raising the, the federal minimum wage. I mean, th things that we are wrestling as, with as a country now, they asked then. And so we, they asked, and my favorite is they added this question into the survey. You ready for this? Here's the question. Would you support or oppose bombing Agrabah? Now, uh, Sam, is that you giggling? Yeah. I love it. Okay, see, you understand this. Now, um, <laughs> I'm just telling you, without an answer to this, Aladdin and Jasmine, they would be ticked if you bombed Agrabah and they're asking Genie to stop it. And if you're still lost, this isn't a real city. This isn't a real city. This is made up from Aladdin. This isn't real. But what's wild is when the results of the survey came in, 30% of Republicans and 20% of Democrats voted in favor of bombing them. I know, I was like, wait a second, wait, this, is, this can't be real. I, I love that they put this in there, but then it hit me. Forget about either group, if you put both together, that means one in four Americans in this survey was ready to bomb a city that didn't exist that they knew nothing about. And my guess is because it sounds like a city found in a Muslim-populated Middle East, and it was doomed to begin with. And in that moment, I grieved for our country. The other moment shook me even deeper, and it brought me to my knees, and it was, um, I, whew, this is one of those wounding moments, you know, when you don't have anything to do with something, but it, it hits you. Um, there was a major leader in one of the 
the most influential Christian movements in the world, that he was standing at a podium addressing thousands of professing Christ followers. And, and this was right after there was a mass shooting in uh, San Bernardino, California, and 14 people lost their lives. The names came out, and um, you know, they, they sounded like Muslim names. Uh, those were the uh, murderers. And in complete seriousness, he stood up in front of this whole crowd, and he said this, word for word. If more people had concealed carry permits, we could end those Muslims before they walk in, to which the entire arena was beginning to applaud. And he mumbles off with and killed them. Let's teach them a lesson if they ever show up here. I know it's one person, I know. But the phrase, let's end, we could end those Muslims. Let's teach them a lesson. To be followed by a standing ovation, it ripped my heart out. And even now I'm telling you this is hard to read because I love my friends who are Muslims. I love them dearly especially my friends who live in the Middle East, the, the friends that I've eaten food with their families in their homes. I mean, surely, surely this man's not talking about my friends now, is he? He's not talking about the people that I love, that I pray for daily. He's not talking about them, right? You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true citizens of your Father in heaven. So my question is, is violence the way that it has to be? Is this the way that it has to be? Is the way of using more power to overcome, is this the only way to really get things done? Or are we as humans really so shaped by the powers and the practicality of violence that it just works and we've stopped believing that there's any other way? In the way of Jesus, let me tell you, triumph Triumph looks like defeat. Winning looks like losing. Life comes through death. His whole life, Jesus was unarmed. And yet he was thoroughly dangerous. And in the upside-down kingdom of God, that's enough. The cross for the Roman Empire was their way of law and order, keeping things in line, to shame people. It taunted revolutionaries, you do this, you, you, this is what you get. It was defeat. It was an end to hope. It was their way of pushing submission to the empire at all costs or else. And I think that's because the assumption was the life that you live here is really all that matters. And if the life that you live here is all that matters, you'll do all you can to protect it. But in the kingdom of the world, Here's what I know, that if you resist violence, violence will find you. It just, I hate this. If you resist violence, violence finds you. And then you have a choice. The first is to pick up the sword, and the second is to lay down your life. For those who pick up the sword, you're always going to need a bigger and better weapon because they will come at something with something bigger and you will need it. 
people who pick up the sword keep the idea alive that violence and power, that's the way that you secure your safety. But for those who ask that question, does this mean I need to lay down my life rather than perpetuate a constant cycle of violence? There has to be a hope that there is something beyond just life and death, doesn't there? There has to be a hope that Jesus Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. That what God did in Jesus through raising him from the dead is something that he'll do in us one day too. It means that that life, in life, it does not matter here because eternity is so much greater and that what Jesus has done in eternity impacts what matters right now. That our life does matter now because of Jesus. He came on a donkey into a city in complete meekness and his meekness was never weakness. It just wasn't. He came into Jerusalem as, as the, the Messiah, this hero who would save, who looked nothing like everybody wanted him. He did not parade in on a war horse. It was a donkey. He looked ridiculous by military standards. He came not with a show of power and of force, but in meekness and in faith. And the words of Jesus that he said in Matthew chapter 5 are, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The Roman Empire, the ruler of the known earth at the time, guess what? They don't own that spot anymore. Meekness will inevitably inherit everything that Rome conquered. The entry of a meek Messiah into the heart of Jerusalem shows us and demonstrates to us the upside-down teaching of Jesus. This isn't something he just said. This is something he lived Violence meant to obtain power. The religious leaders tried to have him crucified. The Romans crucified him as their show of power. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus absorbed the violence. He absorbed the hate so that he could heal our violence and how we see power and authority. On the cross, Jesus exposed very clearly how the power of violence is truly weakness and can hold nothing. If their violence could not stop him, could not stop his disciples and other followers of Jesus in a non-violent way of life, the kingdom of heaven continues to expand. If violence can't stop that, nothing will. Violence tried and violence lost. We are here today, amen? We did not fight to be here. Jesus did not fight for us to be here. And Jesus says that I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the way of Jesus. This made him different. And I know who I know that I kind of took a knife to a sacred cow right now. I will never apologize, but I will never mandate that you have to do this. I just wonder if there's another way than what we've been doing. As followers of Jesus, I would never mandate our country should do something, our nation should do something, our state should do something. I just want to know what I'm doing to follow Jesus, and you need to begin to explore that. 
My mind changed, and it took 25 years. So guess what? In 25 years, it may be different. But I never heard this as an option. And it's a completely new way of looking at, a, at life. I just know that Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We sang, all I did was praise. All I did was worship. All I did was bow down. All I did was stay still. Hallelujah. You have saved me. So much better your way. Do you believe what you're singing? Do you believe what he's teaching? Would you pray with me? Jesus, I am thankful for your words and I am also so frustrated with them because it's just hard. So God, I confess my violent tendencies, even laughing about being 19 and would lay me out now, I know that's true. I know I did it. And I've continued to ask for forgiveness, but I ask even, Lord, that you would continue to convict my heart of where I have violent thoughts towards others because they tick me off. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bring light to darkness in our lives, that we would see where maybe the culture has shaped pieces of our theology, not that you're anti all these things, but violence has no place in your kingdom as you call us to stand up for injustice. There are ways to do this without violence, and you did. God, give us boldness and help us understand meekness isn't weakness, but courage to truly give up the safety of our lives like you did for us. Jesus, thank you for giving us a new way, even though it could cost us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.